Hey, Pilates Elephants, great to be with you. I've got one for you today that will really get you thinking about uh, rehab and whether we need to really individualize care for people with low back pain in particular. So this is one from the archives, but it's not from the Pilates Elephants archives. This is an interview I did with a friend of mine called Mitch Gibbs uh, in, I think it was 2019 or even late 2018 when we did the interview. This was before we even had a podcast. So this was just an interview I did because I was very interested in Mitch's work. Uh, so yeah, he, he's a Mitch is a researcher, and uh, this was his PhD project, and he's also a fellow exercise physiologist. So uh, I think you'll find this one very, very interesting because I do. All right, let's hit the wayback machine, and here's Mitch Gibbs. Hey, Mitchell. Hey, Gary. Yeah, awesome. Thanks for coming on. Uh, thank you very much for having me. Um, now I really want to get into this. 2018 uh, study published in the Journal of Clinical Exercise Physiology. Uh, and without kind of giving away too much, the title kind of does say it all, buy-in for back pain, does individualization matter? Um, so it's pretty well established now that general exercise is just as effective as specific exercise for low back pain. But there's still a widespread belief amongst uh, people giving exercise and also reflected in many current guidelines, actually, that even when you give general exercise, that that exercise should be individualized based, maybe not based on uh, physical parameters, but maybe based on, uh, you know, client preference and belief systems and, and whatnot. Um, so first, can you please explain the distinction between specific exercise, general exercise, and general exercise that's individualized? Yeah, for sure. I think the, the working definitions that we kind of run off um, for those in, in our lab anyway is specific is, um, I guess, a form of individualization where we're, you know, having some assessment or something like that and we're designing an exercise uh, for the purpose of that. Uh, general exercise is, is pretty much just a cookie cutter program. Um, you know, everyone really gets the same thing. Uh, and gen as you said, general exercise that's individualized is it, it's kind of a general exercise that might be non-specific in regard to, you know, if we're referring to specific exercises, we might be referring to some of the common, um, you know, traditional kind of low back interventions. Um, whereas a general exercise that's specific, it might be kind of multiple different modalities that kind of tailors around uh, to the person a little bit more. So in the specific exercise, we're trying to like retrain someone's, you know, muscle recruitment sequencing in their core or we're trying to lengthen their left biceps femoris or we're trying to do some other kind of specific physiological you know change to them whereas in the general exercise it's like hey everyone here's your sheet of 10 exercises to do everyone gets the same uh, and then in the in the individualized general exercise it's still those exercises the same exercises that you would have got on your sheet of 10 exercises but maybe not everyone gets exactly the same 10, you know, so we're just doing kind of exercises that aren't trying to address specific muscle imbalances or motor recruitment patterns or anything like that. They're just kind of like general strengthening and stretching exercise. What you'd get like if you went to the local YMCA gym and got a stock standard, you know, three sets of 10, a chest press, leg press, squats, lunges, that sort of thing. Yeah. Okay. Um, and so... 
Now, we we do know from a very large and convincing body of research, in my view, that specific exercise like training transverse abdominis timing or correcting posture or lifting technique doesn't give any better results than general exercise for low back pain. Now, I'm aware that not all practitioners are yet on board with this information, but I, I think it's fair to say that it's very well established in the literature. And there are a growing number of I guess, enlightened practitioners out there who have accepted that for people with low back pain, evidence does not show any benefit of targeting specific physical parameters like core strength or spinal stability. But even amongst these kind of enlightened practitioners, as I think of them, uh, I'm thinking about the people who are on social media maybe uh, wondering whether pain is a, a sensation or a perception. Even amongst these enlightened practitioners, there's still... I think, a mantra that we should give each client a thorough assessment and individualize their exercise, and not necessarily based on targeting certain physical parameters, but rather based on maybe their preferences, their beliefs, expectations, convenience, you know, Mm -hmm. whatever. So let's talk about your 2018 paper. Um, What did you do in the study? Can you talk us through, you know, what, uh, sorry, uh, what question you were trying to answer first with the study? Yeah. Yes, fantastic. Um, I think, as you, you put it really perfectly, it is it is truly ingrained in the literature that uh, we're really not going to see any differences between a, a specific and non-specific or general intervention um, in terms of, of clinical outcomes, so pain, pain-related disability. Uh, what we were really interested in was was not so much in the physical outcomes. So obviously, we did still report the clinical outcomes in this paper, um, but Basically, based on all the literature, we had no reason to believe that there would be um, a difference between groups. So what we were really interested in was beliefs associated with adherence. So basically, does that clinical assessment uh, and informing the person, hey, you know, this program is designed exactly for you, um, compare at all to just going, hey, here's some exercises, uh, let's get stuck in. Uh, does that influence their adherence to the program and their beliefs associated with adherence? And we use social cognitive theory, uh, Albert Bandura's social cognitive theory, to model that, um, you know, with the three pillars of, of behaviour being uh, self-efficacy, outcome expectation and intention. So basically what we did was we, we took these measures before the first session, after the first session, and then again eight weeks later. So to see if that first session, that, you know, assessment versus getting stuck in, um, has any difference on on the beliefs associated with adherence whatsoever? So you had two. You were trying to figure out. We're trying to answer the question of uh, if we give people an individualised program, you know, based on a thorough assessment, versus if we just give them here's your sheet of ten exercises, sort of thing. Um, d- how does that affect their their self efficacy essentially and their beliefs around? Uh, adherence to exercise like are they more likely to do the exercise are they like more likely to feel that they're capable of doing exercise and the exercise is going to help their back pain is that what you were trying to answer yeah pretty much we we kind of use um adherence as as the next kind of logical step we kind of went well if, if exercise in terms of specific versus general doesn't doesn't really seem to yield um any difference in in clinical outcomes are we able to use adherence as the next proxy for for what we target as exercise practitioners? Right. And I, you know, again, this is purely anecdotal, but it seems to me that uh, I see this a lot in, you know, my colleagues and I probably even detected in myself is like, well, I've gone to university for four years. 
I feel like I should, you know, use my, in quote, skills and knowledge to uh, craft a finely tuned and, uh, you know, individualized program for my clients, something they wouldn't get from the local certificate three in fitness instructor at the local YMCA. <laughs> it would be more yeah. effective. Um, and so now the, the, they've taken out the the barstool leg for, out from under us of uh, making, you know, physio- targeting physiological parameters, you know, fixing the transversus timing or whatever. But so now I, it feels to me like I, I want to say, oh, yes, but there's a lot of skill in how you uh, reassure someone and choose the right exercises based on their beliefs and expectations. Um, but mm-hmm. that's kind of what you were measuring in this study, right? So if we if we individualize the exercises does it affect those beliefs and expectations any more or less than if we just hand you a green sheet of paper with 10 exercises on it? Pretty much. All right. And um, so when, when you, uh, you know, so you had these two groups of, of clients and what did you, so what was the, in the intervention group, you know, the individualized group, like what was the, inter, what was the assessment? What did the assessment consist of? Um, let me just scroll down so I don't misspeak. I've just got the paper up here. So the assessment um, went through a couple of different things. So movement pattern abhorrences, um, you know, muscular imbalances, all the, the common really EP stuff um, that, that is, you know, kind of used and that we've seen being used. So, um, you know, went through squat movement, um, observation of a movement pattern or pain provocation, uh, aberrant motion in the lumbar spine or the pelvis motion, uh, hip, in, uh, hip assessment, including like hip scouring for glute med, anterior hip capsule, plus a straight leg raise. Um, you know, things like if the straight leg range of motion was uh, under 80 degrees, there was a prescription of hamstring stretching. Um, so in the back of the paper, it's got the pretty much comprehensive kind of cause and effect. Here's the assessment and here was the prescription outcome. So um, obviously in research, we have to control everything as possible. There were different uh, EPs prescribing the program. So we had to well, my supervisor, um, Associate Professor Paul Marshall, went through and basically went, okay, so here's the assessment, here's the prescription outcome that they get. Right. Um, you know, based on on this for the individualised group. Um, from my point of view, the the really kind of the, the thing that, that I tried to get across in this paper is, you know, reading, reading this paper, uh, you know, looking at this intervention, we weren't expecting um, any physical outcomes to be different. Uh, we were more trying to probe the the sensation of individualization. Like we're we're doing tests where you know we're we're making sure that this is one hundred percent designed for you. You know the conveyance of that that information to the person. That kind of as as you you put so well. Um, you know we've been to university. This is our skills. This is what we're doing. Um, versus hey, you know here's your green sheet of ten exercises. Right, and and then does that interaction um influence the the patient or the client's perception beliefs and ultimately behavior and outcomes yeah so uh so you know could you could you give us an example of you know doesn't have to be representative but just like an example of uh what someone would have got as a program in that individualized program like what what sort of things would they have been doing yep um Okay, so the one of the things is so they they did get a lot of the the exercises that did pop up in the general program as well, um, and this might make more sense when I talk through the general program. But basically, um, you know, for example, straight leg raise, they got hamstring stretching. 
um, you know, stretching prescription, if there was glutamate or piriformis tightness, things like that, mm-hmm. um, you know, cat camel exercises, they ended up with, with bird dogs or, or quadrupeds, um, you know, uh, sorry, side bridge, things like that. The, the other thing with the individualized program is, and this is one of the, when we, so I, I said to you before we started recording, we initially put this into a different journal. And one of the critiques from one of the reviewers was that um, a lot of the exercises that rocked up in the individualized program, like those, those bird dog, the traditional back pain exercises that we, we all know so well and we've all been exposed to, um, they appeared in both programs. And that was kind of what we were going for in a way. We were trying to see, well, if the exercises don't matter, as, as I kind of said, we're more just focusing on the, the information and the interaction given the therapeutic alliance of this is for you versus those exercises. Uh, so in a lot of ways, the program did end up uh, similar in both groups, um, which is really quite interesting um, because that's kind of the proofs in the pudding that we really did strip it down to just looking at the beliefs associated rather than the physical outcomes. Right. You can kind of controlled for the, any, you know, differences based on different exercises. Yes. Yes. All right. And so, yeah. So tell us about what was on the green sheet of 10 exercises that, that the other participants got. Yeah. So the green sheet, um, had two, two sides to it. So basically at four weeks, um, they progressed. Now the, the only difference there is with the individualized assessment, they were able to, the trainer was able to progress at any session. So they continued to get that experience of individualization over the eight weeks. Um, so in the uh, general program, so they had bird dog, partial curl up, side bridge, um, squats, static lunges, and that was the oh, over, overhead squats um, and static lunges, sorry. And then when we move into the next uh, four-week block, it basically the quadruped goes to a full-body quadruped, so hands and toes rather than hands and knees, um, side bridge increased in duration. Uh, we did a hip hinge movement. The lunges became walking lunges, just a pretty simple progression. It wasn't anything um, too exciting. It was 100% calis- uh, calisthenic. There was no external loading used or anything like that. Hmm. Okay. Uh, so, you know, a bunch of core, a bunch, a little bit of back, a little bit of legs, mm. you know, front I'll sides push, and back. Push-ups in both as well. Yeah. Right. And don't forget the arms. Okay. Yes. Um, and... Uh, you know, so you had these two groups, uh, you had, I think roughly from memory, like 15 or 18 people in each group. Is that about, is that about right? Yeah. This was only a pilot study, um, looking to basically see, should we do a fully powered study to kind of examine the, um, the differences in this, right. um, you know, should we spend, you know, two to three years of, of time, resource and money further investigating this question? So that's why the, the group numbers were, were a little bit lower in this one. I wish people would ask that question before they do another study on transverse abdominis retraining. They seem <laughs> oh, to keep you and me both. <laughs> they seem to keep doing those studies, and they seem to keep coming up with the same conclusions. I, I shudder to think how much money has been spent. Ah, <laughs> oh, yep, yep, I agree. So, in your study, so you had the two groups: one's doing the general exercise, you know, squats, lunges, curl ups, side planks, uh, bird dog, um, and the other group, you know, are doing you know somewhat similar exercises, but prescribed based on a thorough individualized assessment. So the first session for each group was quite different. The The individualized group, their first session was basically just an assessment session, right? 
Yes, so it was an assessment session, and because, um, as I said, with the assessment, there was kind of a ticker box in terms of the prescription, so this equals this, they left with a program. So it was basically, here's your assessment, at the end of it, here's the exercises to go and do. Uh, The general exercise group was basically come in um, and just rip right into those 10 exercises and go home and continue performing those 10 exercises. So both groups were, the program that they performed with the trainer They were to perform up to three times at home on their own. Um, And then so obviously one group, they did the exercises, went home, were told, hey, do these three more times before I see you next week. And the other group did an assessment and went, go home and give these a crack before I see you next week. Okay. Um, And so, you know, a problem with – because what what you're measuring was expectation and beliefs um, and self-efficacy and adherence. And also, I know some of your outcome measures were disability and pain, but no surprise, spoiler alert, no, diff- yeah. no difference between groups on that one. But, um, you know, so when, we're, when you're trying to um, measure the effects of your intervention on expectation, you know, the, the uh, blinding has to be really important in that trial. Um, so can you just explain to us what blinding is and, and how you did that in your trial? Yeah, so... This was double blind, so the instructors were single group only. They didn't know that another group um, was there, Um, and the participants also didn't know that another group was there. Uh, We reported it in the, I think, the limitations section, um, or it could have been in the discussion, or it was was somewhere in the paper. Uh, I believe there were two people um, that knew that there was another group because it was a, a mother and daughter that basically got assigned to separate groups and you know that's just a bit unfortunate when that happens um but so basically yeah the instructors didn't didn't know that another group existed right um, they were just trained in, in their approach only right so each group of instructors you know if you were if you were giving the individualized program you thought that's this trial is about an individualized exercise program and if you were giving the standard pro the general program you thought this trial is about a general program and you didn't know that there was a, another group doing a different intervention and and uh and so the the participants didn't know that either mm-hmm. uh, because if you knew that you were in a group and there was another group like why might that be a problem oh well you might you know a lot of people know that you know, with research, there's generally a control group or an intervention group. Um, you might think that you're getting the control um, or you're getting the intervention and it might artificially manipulate, um, you know, outcome expectations. And that's, that's a problem and that's, you know, what we're trying to measure. Right. So, in other words, if we were, if we were measuring like a, a maybe a drug and uh, I whispered to you, oh, Mitchell, don't say anything, but you've got the real drug, you know, yes. or, or Mitchell, don't say anything, but you've got the placebo, you've got the sugar pill. Um, you know, that's going to very likely affect your expectation of outcome, um, which will probably affect your outcome. Yes. So yes. We, try, we try and hide those facts from people within the study as much as possible. Yeah, definitely. All right. Definitely. There's a lot of things like that. Um, just just quickly a side note, one of the, the inherent problems with, with exercise research for back pain is we pretty much have no other option but to to – you know, the person knows they're going to be exercising. So we, we already have a bias that we're attracting people that already have positive uh, association with exercise and have an expectation and belief that exercise is going to be beneficial for them. Uh, we've got a monitoring study that was part of my master's thesis that has been going for almost five years where we've got uh, around 400 people that we've been checking in with every three months for a year. 
And there are people out there that, that don't think exercise will help them and that, that don't have positive relationships with exercise. Uh, and those are the people that aren't going to come to to a trial um, that, that we're providing. So, they, you know, if they see a oh, clinical exercise uh, back pain trial at, at the university, they're not going to sign up for that. Um, so there are a lot of problems even just with the sample size as much as we try and randomise and things like that. In, in exercise-based research, there, there are some problems that exist like that as well. Mm, I think, I mean, I think those problems exist in a lot of research. I'm thinking of um, uh, some of the, the sleep deprivation pain studies that have been done, and I'm thinking like, well, how do they advertise these things? I can imagine walking around <laughs> uni and there's a, something up on the notice board, you know, $20 if you participate in this sleep deprivation pain experiment. It's like, well, what sort of person volunteers for that? <laughs> Uh, me when I was a broke uni student. <laughs> <laughs> but does that does you know does that skew the the sample? Uh, yeah, definitely, definitely. Um. So all right, and so what? Just can you just remind us again of the outcome measures that you were looking for, looking at in this in this study? Yeah, for sure. So we took um, obviously clinical outcomes being pain and pain related disability. Uh, that was pre and after eight weeks. Um, and then the other outcome measures, the secondary outcome measures were done before the first session, after the first session, and then again in eight weeks. Uh, and they were outcome expectations, self-efficacy, and intention. And can, and can you just explain, uh, you know, in layperson's terms, what each of those things are, like outcome expectations, self-efficacy, and whatever the third one yep. was that you said? Uh, yeah. So intention is just, you know, your willingness to do something. So basically we said to them, hey, we're going to ask you to do this program four times a week, once with us, three times at home. So out of four, how many times are you going to do it a week? Um, exercise self-efficacy is is your – so we measured exercise self-efficacy, so it was their belief to, to undertake exercise. And we basically said, hey, um, you're going to be doing this program. What is your belief in your ability to be able to do it? Uh, and outcome expectations are basically what do you expect from the program. So this program is going to run for eight weeks. Where do you expect – uh, yourself to be in in eight weeks, and they were measured on three different subscales. So there's physical outcome expectation, uh, social outcome expectation, and self-evaluated outcome uh, expectation. And so it's basically how is this program going to manipulate those variables of your your life over eight weeks? Uh, and so we basically say to the person, so you know, with this measure, this measure is somewhat saying to them, you know, you're going to do this program for eight weeks. Where do you foresee you'll be in eight weeks? And then after that first session, we see, well, hang on, does that change now that you really know what it's going to be all about? Right. And uh, just out of interest, did you go back afterwards and uh, look at any of those, like the baseline levels of those as predictors of outcome? Uh, no, we didn't. Because I, I think that's what you did with that uh, observational study in your master's thesis, right, is you looked at baseline self-efficacy beliefs and has that predicted outcome? Yes. Yeah. All right, well, let's yeah, maybe... Yeah, so that, that type of, Oh, sorry, um, just quickly, that, that kind of analysis needs to be powered quite highly. Um, so that's kind of a mediation analysis where we look at uh, one variable leading to another variable through um, mediating variables. So, for example, pain or disability uh, leading through self-efficacy and things like that. Uh, and what, one of the problems with mediation analysis uh, is it's it's the hot topic at the moment. A lot of people are using it, um, and it's it's fantastic to see. However, it needs to be powered significantly higher than something like a, a simple analysis of covariance. So when we've got a study such as this with the 15 people uh, or the current um, powerlifting study we're, we're doing, we've got 64 people. We're still not powered enough for a, for a mediation analysis with, with 64. 
Right. Actually, I remember reading in your master's thesis, you had like 460 something participants. And I think the, one of the limitations you said at the end was like, oh yeah, not quite, not quite enough participants. <laughs> to, yeah. To that's be why it's inclusive. still running four years later. <laughs> right. Um, okay. So, uh, and so what did you find in, in this study? Yeah. So, um, as you said before, surprise, surprise, no real between group differences in, in the clinical outcome side of things. Um, what we saw in the the first session um, outcomes is there was small group effects between. So we're not really sure to see, you know, would there be, um, sorry, a, a big difference. So there was a significant difference favouring the, the general exercise group in all aspects of the outcome expectations. Um, there was also, it wasn't significant, but there was a small effect. And this was the most interesting one for me. Um, there was a small effect on exercise self-efficacy. And why it was so interesting was the individualized group exercise self-efficacy on average went down after the first session. Uh, whereas the general exercise group went up. Um, so, like I said, didn't reach significance. We did have a small effect. So, if we had a larger sample size, it would have very likely reached significance. Um, and intention was pretty much the same. Hmm. So, so, exercise self-efficacy was favourably uh, changed in, you know, improved in the general exercise group, and on average, slightly went down in the tailored exercise group. But th- those results weren't significant, which means that statistically we can't we can't say whether that was just a fluke of it happened to be a random fluctuation some electrons in someone's brain zigged instead of zagging yes um but your your hunch is that if you'd had more people it would have reached statistical significance i think so there was there was definitely a trend for it to go that way and then when we look at it um you know from from a logical standpoint and this was kind of the section in the clinical implications that for me was the powerful part of the paper was it does make a lot of sense that the people in the general exercise group who got in, uh, did the exercises, had an inflated um, belief in their ability to undertake those exercises because they've just done them. They've been able to execute them, the proofs in the pudding, whereas the people in the individualized group have just spent an hour going through assessments and have no idea um, if they can do the exercise because they haven't actually done them. Right. So immediately after you've done the thing, you're more confident that you can do the thing. That kind of makes sense. Yeah. Um. All right, and so and and then, but then at at the end of the study, it was essentially a wash, right? Pretty much. So there was no, you know, no uh, real measurable benefit uh, on self-efficacy, on uh, the intention to exercise, uh, or on people's expectation from tail, you know, a, a highly tailored program, or what they perceived to be a highly tailored program. Uh, yeah. Huh. And, uh, yeah, what do you think this means? What, like, okay, so if I'm a, I'm a practitioner, I see people who've got chronic low back pain with moderate levels of pain and disability, like what, what, what's my takeaway from this, do you think? Um, the takeaway for me is, is to just get people moving. Um, you know, that is, that is kind of our role. That is, that is what we're there for. You know, and if we look at something like the Medicare um, EPC structure, if we've only got five sessions with a person, if we use an entire one of those sessions based on an assessment that is going to get us 
nothing in terms of physical uh, or belief associated outcomes, then then we're wasting that that session and we're wasting that person's time for, for um, you know want of a better term. Uh, so for me, it, it, the takeaway is really you know just getting them moving. Uh, well, you know, firstly, I couldn't agree more, but secondly, I think like what you're saying there is pretty heretical, Mitchell. Like, you know, ever since I've been a kid, you know, figuratively speaking, in in the exercise world, I've been told that you have to start everything starts with a client assessment. You know, do not pass go until you've mm. thoroughly assessed your client. And like I said be, before at the start, even amongst the kind of biopsychosocial oriented uh, practitioners in in my circle anyway, you know, everybody freely acknowledges that physical parameters are not, you know, useful targets for interventions aimed at improving low back pain. But nevertheless, everybody unanimously agrees that a thorough assessment and individualization is very important. And you're saying, yeah, no, it's not. Yeah, I've, I've upset a few people. <laughs> How, how's your hate mail going? Oh, I've, I've, I've had the odd person or two um, completely disregard everything I do because of, of these messages, but that's okay. <laughs> um, what is the, you know... What does the broader literature have to say on this? Is, is are these the only studies that have looked at at this kind of area? In terms of the beliefs associated with adherence, uh, in terms of more like uh, the value or lack of value afforded by an assessment. Um, in terms of specifically looking at the assessment um, and how it it modulates the things we're interested in. Uh, I'm not sure of, of any others. I really haven't come across them. I know there have been lines of research that have changed over time, um, but they haven't changed due to running a study to inform that change, um, if, if that makes sense. Uh, like, So the one that comes to mind is the um, classification-based cognitive functional therapy, uh, where it began with, with a very big uh, assessment based on the classification base, and then the 2018 or 2017 paper of just cognitive functional therapy seemed to remove a lot of that classification-based element. Um, I don't recall seeing a study that, that looked at that. Mm. Um, so it seems to have, have moved forward, but in terms of an actual study that, that looks at what we've looked at here, I'm, I'm not familiar with, with others off the top of my head or that I've, I've come across. We're, we're doing another one based on this at the moment um, as well, but, but other than that, yeah, I'm not too sure. Well, I'd love to hear about that in a minute. Um, so just briefly, the Cognitive Functional Therapies, Peter O'Sullivan and Charlton Vibifersum's group, and uh, their original paper, I can't recall the date, I think you said 2013, but it was, they basically had this classification-based system, which was they classified people based on whether they had what they call an active extension pattern or a passive flexion pattern or whatever it was, you know, basically they classified them according to the movement, um, you know, classification of their lumbar spine and pelvis. Uh, and then later on they abandoned that and, uh, yeah, the, well, I talked to Shatan about it actually. And he said it's because, yeah, it didn't, didn't seem to make any difference. So. Yeah. And I completely, I think it was the, like a fantastic move and I, I absolutely love those guys work and love their research. Um, as I said, I, I wasn't sure I, I could be completely wrong. I, I can't remember if there was a paper looking at, um, removing that, that classification base where it just focused on that assessment. Um, for example, so for Obviously, they've. It seems they've met a very similar conclusion, um, but in terms of a paper that really just focuses just on that assessment, I, I can't recall 
seen that. I may, I may have missed it. Um, but I think that's where this, this 2018 paper that, that Paul and I put out um, is a little different where we've just kind of focused just on that, that one microscopic part of, of the intervention. I think it's genius because, uh, you know, after reading your paper, it really got me thinking and thinking about, well, if you go to Google Scholar and type in exercise for low back pain, you get something like 2 million returns. And Mm -hmm. after all of those research papers admitted, you know, a lot of them aren't high quality, but, you know, this is just an insanely heavily studied area. And the best we can do after 2 million papers is like, try not to worry and go about your business. You know, it's like it's very poor result, uh, and so and we know that you know exercise seems to help a bit, not that much, but it helps a bit, and it really, really, really doesn't matter what sort of exercise you do. Like we've looked at, um, you know, heavy deadlifting versus core activation. We've looked at walking versus strengthening. We've looked at yoga versus, you know, breathing. We've looked at Pilates versus cycling, and they all work exactly the same amount. You know, nothing works any better or worse than anything else, and so that you know. Now, in hindsight, after reading your study, I'm like, well, face palm, of course. Well, how, how does our, you know, if, if literally anything works, you know, as well as anything else, it's like, well, why are we bothering to go through this assessment process then, you know, and masquerade that we're giving some kind of targeted intervention based on any parameters? Mm, yes, yeah, I agree. Um, I just saw, actually, in my Facebook feed this morning, um, Derek Griffin posted a fantastic paper uh, it's just published just out this year. Uh, it's called Effect of a Brief Progressive Resistance Training Program in Hospital Porters on Pain, Workability, and Function and Physical Function. Uh, and this is uh, from the Journal Musculoskeletal Science and Practice. And uh, basically what they did was they got uh, about 40 hospital workers and they didn't do any assessment. They didn't have a... Uh, they weren't testing this assessment question, but basically they had no assessment. Everyone got a standardized program. They did a little circuit for a, a few weeks, for nine weeks, and um, two or three sessions a week. Oh, sorry, five 15-minute sessions a week. Uh, you know, just standard exercises like the ones you've mentioned. They used uh, resistance bands instead of body weight, but basically very, very similar movements. Uh, uh, absolutely no assessment or individualization, and uh, everyone felt better at the end. You know, surprise, surprise. It's all my biases. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it's it's it's. I think uh, it it's it to me. The, I think the, the paper that you've published is uh, one small step for you know for for man, one giant leap for mankind. Because it really, I think, seriously questions some of our fundamental assumptions about how you know what what value we bring as exercise professionals i mean the whole kind of thesis of s's you know marketing campaign is exercise right for you it's like well you know if you could literally do anything uh, and it works just as well in terms of uh, low back pain um you know where does that leave us as a profession any thoughts um yeah it's 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 thoughts that we've We've gone over um, Paul and myself quite a few times. You know, anything seems to work. You know, where does that leave us as a profession? Where do we fit in? Um, and I think that's what I, I imagine we might get to this topic in a minute. But that's what really fueled the the design of the um, the current study that we just finished uh, running the RCT, which was if we take the the 
the things we can do and do them as well as we possibly can as exercise-based professionals staying in our lane um, and not not broadening on. Because the reality is, you know, if, if we could have every single chronic low back pain patient, you know, have multidisciplinary and multidimensional care um, from, you know, an exercise practitioner, um, you know, potentially a physiotherapist, um, a, a psychologist, you know, it, it would be fantastic. But that, that's not reality. Um, and that's not really going to happen, um, unfortunately. So we kind of looked at if we have these. Is people, it really like, I mean, I, I'm aware that multimodal care shows like slightly superior results to like single mode care, but like compare in when you think about like a lot of these uh, multimodal approaches are inpatient programs where the person has to take time off work and it's like mm. horrendously expensive, like tens of thousands of dollars per client, you know, to do like a 100 hour intensive inpatient program and it's something like you know 10 percent better than going to your physio once a week sort of thing am i yeah. missing the mark on that no no i think you're completely uh completely right there i think we were just more looking at from you know if we looked at the things that seemed to work so if we looked at you know exercise as you said seemed to work a little bit um you know psychology and things like cbt pain education seems to also work a little bit and then if we look at well who's the best person for that um obviously you know, I, I, me personally, as an exercise practitioner, I'm not the best person to be running CBT and things like that. A psychologist would definitely do that better than me. Um, but we didn't want to look at, well, let's measure bringing in psychologists, bringing in multimodal care because of all the things you stated. It's, it's not realistic. And, you know, for the marginal increase in benefits we may see, um, it doesn't really seem to be, you know, worth the, the increase in cost and, and things like that. So we try, we're trying to really look at, well, where do we actually come in as exercise professionals? And it's an extremely hard question. Hmm. Um, and, you know, that's kind of what uh, Peter O'Sullivan and his group have done is, is, is bring that psychological aspect into what they call cognitive functional therapy. And they don't do it by psychologizing people and they're not doing CBT, but they're doing behavior-based, uh, you know, belief, belief disconfirmation and stuff. Um, hmm. So... Yeah, and and that does seem you know the CFT does seem to have again somewhat superior outcomes to regular physiotherapy, but it's not uh, you know a silver bullet for for back pain. So mm. yeah, so tell us about this uh, the current study uh, on in powerlifting. Yeah, so basically what we did was we we took a pain education. Um, we gave pain education to both groups. It was an eight week intervention. Uh, one group got the general program from this 2018 paper and the really cool thing just a side note there of what we've done is because in the first session the first session exactly the same uh it just ends with with some pain education rather than just ending after the exercise so what we're now doing is one of um paul's master students veronica is taking the data that i've collected from the rct um from the general group and comparing it with this general group and seeing well what happens in that initial uh, session when we just take the same exercises and add pain education hmm. um and from memory I, I could butcher this a little bit but i'm pretty sure exercise uh self-efficacy uh increased the gain, which was which was cool um and it was either intention or outcomes increase and the other one didn't really go anywhere i have a feeling outcomes increased but intention didn't um huh. but intention was already pretty high in, in this study huh. um so that that was cool um, that's the little study we built in, um, which is kind of following on from this 2018 paper. 
Um, but so the second group, so this group obviously got pain education with the, the same eight-week general program. And the second group basically got eight weeks of uh, pretty much the, the 531. Um, we modified the 531 method. So we started with the first session. They got under a barbell. They squatted. Um, they deadlift or deadlift variation, bench press. And then we did a horizontal row, a vertical pull, um, and a leg press. And we did that. So the first five weeks, without going you know, too, too in-depth, but basically the first five weeks are pretty much what we just called progression weeks. So uh, if the person started at a rack pull, we tried to progress them to the floor. If a person started at a box squat, we tried to progress them to a full depth squat. Now, when we got to the six-week mark, uh, wherever they had gotten to, if they were still on a box, still mid-rack, whatever it was, they stayed there. And the last three weeks, we just ran, you know, five, three, one. So we did a five RM in week six, a three RM in week seven, and a one RM in week eight. Sounds like a sounds like a fun program. It was a lot of fun. Um, yeah. All right. So you had these two groups. Um, they both did a standardised exercise program, but they both did a different standard exercise program. One group did a body weight based program, planks and side planks and push-ups and lunges and all that kind of stuff. And the other group got under a barbell and did back squats, deadlifts and bench press. Yeah. Okay. And uh, yeah, what, what, what were you measuring? Uh, so we were measuring the – the same things in this study to obviously contrast, uh, but mainly we're measuring um, clinical uh, clinical outcome exp- uh, clinical outcomes. Pardon me, so pain pain related disability to see if there was any difference, and we also measured which we we kind of put together with the help of my co supervisor, who's a clinical psychologist, um, Dr. Natalie Morrison. We put together a fear hierarchy, and so basically we gave both groups um, pictures of a person squatting a loaded barbell and picking up a loaded barbell and ask them to rate out of 10 how fearful they, they were of that movement. Huh. And can you give us a clue as to what they said? Um, that data hasn't been looked at yet um, because, if I'm being completely honest, I have no idea how to interpret it. Um, that's something that, that my co-supervisor has a, a lot more experience with than me, so I'm going to sit down with her um, once, once we're able to get back into the university and go through that. Uh, in terms of the, the differences between groups, um, I'm not sure of the difference between groups because we've only recently just finished about two weeks ago. Um, we know that basically as a whole, everyone seemed to get better. Um, so clinical uh, outcomes went down. I believe it was a large effect. It could have been moderate bordering on large. So that was that was cool. Uh, but the between groups, I'm not too too sure of yet. But basically, what we're trying to kind of look at is, is there some kind of complementary message with the the messages given in pain education? You know, talking uh, robustness and resilience, and then you know, let's get under a barbell and and you know, show you just how robust and resilient you are versus you know, robust and resilient, and and now let's do these these core exercises to help strengthen um, and protect. Right. So it's kind of a graded exposure approach. Is that yes. correct? Yeah. Uh, and so what was the, you know, I imagine you managed the communication during the eight weeks fairly carefully in terms of what was the message that was given to the participants around their back pain. Um, so mm-hmm. yeah, can you talk about that? Yeah. So 
we had the the pay education and things like that was was really well structured um the one massive limitation with this study is it was pretty much all run by me um in terms of running both groups uh, because we just didn't have funding to get get research assistance and things like that mm-hmm. um so we were able to get a research assistant to do uh, a little bit um and so what we did because i was running both groups we made it a crossover design so they did a bit of both groups as well um but basically we had you know, some form of a, a script for the pain education. And if questions uh, were to come up, we were basically only able to um, relay the information we've already been through in, in that week and previous weeks in, in different wording. We weren't able to kind of give any extra information that was that was um, agreed upon from the outset. Uh-huh. And so um, what about like during the intervention, were you, uh, you know, like were you asking people about their pain levels whilst they're exercising or anything like that? No, so one of the things that that was one of the things that we didn't do at all, and that um, we we don't do in any of these studies. So we don't ask people about their pain uh, during the session. Um, we just kind of trust that they'll tell us if they need to. Um, there's there's some limitations to that approach, but what we found in in some of uh, some of our work that we've done in in the clinic at the the uni is when we start to ask people, they start to get quite hyper vigilant and they start to to really think about it, and they might be moving just fine. All of a sudden, we say, you know, hey, how's your back feeling? You know, the next couple of reps, all of a sudden, they're like, oh, hang on, yeah, it's actually, it's actually hurting a bit at the moment. Yeah, and and that's borne out in the research. Like, there's a paper I can't recall the authors, but basically, they they primed people with a pain word, like you know, excruciating or whatever, and mm. then uh, gave them an electric shock, and then other people got primed with a r- random word like clouds or you know, ice cream or something, and uh, the people who were primed with the pain related word rated as more painful mm. so it's definitely a thing yes yeah um all right and so like yeah what are your takeaways from some from what you've learned so far from this this research project um i think some of the cool things that you know i i did the um the education paper that i'm writing up at the moment which was a, a seminar basically talking all about this paper and some of the things that I, I found myself speaking a lot more to in those are, are unfortunately the things that we didn't either think to measure or don't get measured in a study. Oh, um, so, for example, sorry? Darn it. Yeah. Um, uh, live and we learn, hopefully. Um, but basically, one of the really cool things was out of the, the 32 people uh, in the, uh, the gym group, the powerlifting model group, pretty much by the end of it, all bar. I'm going to say all bar two, but but that's being conservative. I'm pretty sure it was all had either joined the gym or started actively going to a gym they were already a member of. Oh, that's awesome! Um, so for me, that was that was fantastic. We had people that that didn't want to engage with with exercise, engaging with exercise. Um, the move, the the calisthenic group, the general exercise program group that were doing body weight, um, they, they they seem to be doing continuing doing those exercises at home. You know where they're going to be in six and twelve months is is what's really going to be the the differentiating factor in, in my opinion. I think if there's going to be any differences uh, between these groups, it'll it'll show up within the the six to twelve month follow up period because we've got people that have uh, engaged with exercise, uh, found exercise as a hobby, going to the gym to do it, um, and you know seemingly like really important uh, reporting that they're really enjoying it and loving it. Uh, and then we've got people that are just continuing to do some bodyweight exercises at home um, and how long they continue to do that. If we look at 
um, you know, some of the other research seems to really dwindle off by that three to six month mark. And I, I'm just purely speculating here and, you know, my bias is towards lifting heavy things, but um, that I know there's research in aerobic exercise on uh, high intensity interval training uh, that, you know, it, it people struggle with adherence because it's just darn painful, you know, like sprinting on a ergo cycle for 10 seconds every 30 seconds. It's like it really hurts. Um, whereas when you lift heavy, like 5RM or heavier, actually you get less muscle burn than when you lift 12 rep max or something, you know, a bit lighter. So I wonder if you're aware or um, if there is any research on adherence with the lifting heavy versus lifting moderate or light loads. Uh, yeah, look, I'm not sure on the, the adherence. That's a really cool question, though. Um, and I think that's a question that I guess a lot of practitioners, you know, with there's been a lot of papers lately. Um, I'm pretty sure Schoenfeld's done quite a few on the, the light versus heavy load. And a lot of people kind of practitioners anecdotally will make that uh, association and go, well, light load, you know, it just sucks. Like doing 40 reps when you can get the same outcome with 10 reps, you know, it's just not fun. Um, so they kind of make that, but I'm not sure if there's any direct research looking at that, but that's, yeah, that's a really cool question. Hmm. Um, yeah. So, all right. So if we, if we zoom out again and, uh, you know, think about your research in the context of the broader literature, um, you know, someone comes to you as a, you know, PhD candidate exercise physiologist They've got low back pain. You screen them for red flags, presumably. Uh, after that, what do you do? Yeah, I think start exercising. Um, <laughs> seems the, the pain education, like I said, helps. So some education around pain, some education around resilience um, in an open conversation. In terms of what the way we did it was we ensured that the, the primary mode of the, the session stayed exercise so we did um education and conversation simply the last 10 minutes of each session so sessions were an hour and that was it um to ensure that exercise was still the primary modality um look my bias still fits the strength training obviously whether or not there's going to be a between group difference uh, i don't know um I, I i really don't know i originally hypothesized that there would be because there would be some kind of complementary effect um but that might just be a manifestation of my bias um so we'll just have to wait and see, I think, for that. Um, in terms of kind of the, the advice we, we really give uh, that, that we've taken out of this study and that we come into this study with is make it fun. So make it something they enjoy, um, which just seems to get people to do it for longer. You know, a lot of the, the limitations with a lot of these, these studies is we get that effect with, with an eight to 12-week program, but by six months, everyone's pretty much returned to baseline. Um, because they're not continuing to engage with the modality. So if it's something they enjoy and they're going to continue to engage with, you know, we've got no reason to believe one thing works better than another. Uh, so why can't we find something they enjoy? And the second thing that, that we we suggest is if you if you if there's something that you're fearful of, for example, if you're, if you're fearful of a deadlift, if you're worried about a deadlift, rather than write it off, use, use those principles of graded exposure to work, work towards it. Right, and so after you've done a bunch of deadlifts and uh, feeling good about it, looking at someone, a picture of someone doing a deadlift isn't as scary as it used to be. Hopefully, hopefully. <laughs> and 
And so what do you think this, uh, you know, what do you think of the implications of this, you know, line of research? Because, okay, you're the, you're the first group that I'm aware of to, to directly look at this question of does an assessment add anything to the process? Um, but they're just absolute mountains of research showing that essentially any form of exercise works just as well as any other form of exercise. Mm. Um, so, yeah, so what do, you, what do you think, you know, should be done differently in universities and personal training courses and physiotherapy colleges and whatever in terms of training, training practitioners? Um, I think, you know, I think somewhere along the way, you know, I think you, you put it really well when we become – you know, a university trained exercise practitioner, we, we feel the need to run these these clinical assessments and formulate a very clinical uh, approach. You know, when, when we're all going through university, we all we all see these images of of the um, the physiotherapist, the physiologist, things like that, with a theraband wrapped all over the gym. Um, and I think it's it's kind of those images that and those um, you know, logical fallacies that we need to kind of walk move away from a bit and just get back to our roots of just designing good well-rounded exercise programs um you know as you say there's there's no difference in any type of exercise um you know one idea that we, we've thrown around is what if we were to actually look at all of the exercise literature and see which ticks the box of something as simple as you know the australian physical guidelines or the acsm guidelines of resistance training twice a week aerobic activity um you know things like that and my hunch would be not many at all uh, and when we know what we know about pain and, and what we know about exercise, um, you know, for chronic low back pain, my, my question that I keep coming back to is why do we train people with back pain differently um, than if we were to get someone without back pain, you know, comes into our gym and says, hey, I want a good training program. You know, we've got this, this novice, this blank canvas. We're going to go, okay, let's get into some resistance training. You know, let's train these, you know, push, pull, horizontal push, horizontal pull patterns and go through the motions like that. But as soon as someone says, oh, look, I've got a sore back, we, we default to this clinical assessment and, you know, a different mode of training. And I'm just not sure why. Me neither. Well, uh, it, I think that's a great place to leave it. Um, so I'm, I'm really grateful for this conversation, Mitchell. Uh, you've been a little bit of a, somebody who I've admired from afar. Um, so, uh, it's a thrill to talk with you and uh, hear the ins and outs of your research, and I really look forward to reading those results. Do you have any inkling at this stage of of when or where that might be published? Uh, so we've got the the six month results will be in um, in about four months, um, and the first place that'll probably be published will be my PhD thesis. That's that's going to be the last thing to be to be added to the thesis, and then it'll be be working on publication. Uh, where that goes from publication, that's a conversation with with my supervisors Paul and Nat um, to to figure that one out. Um, the we've got a study in for publication at Spine at the moment where we took a survey of AEPs and physios um, to look at. Do biomedical or biopsychosocial beliefs influence clinical decision making? Um, so hopefully that one gets through and gets out soon, and then we'll go from there. And what's the short answer on that one? Um, biopsychosocial beliefs don't really seem to matter. Uh, biomedical beliefs do. So it's it's quite interesting. The the next study we did from that, which is the one I finished uh, last night, that I posted the results in the the knowledge exchange group on on um, Facebook. Um, we see that 
biopsychosocial beliefs, uh, as we measured with the, the PABS um, scale, uh, it doesn't really matter if they're, they're high, if you've got high biomedical beliefs, it will influence your uh, clinical decision making. Right. And that's where we see, um, and, you know, I'm probably going to get in trouble for saying this, but the in, the recent interview I saw with Stuart McGill, where he was claiming that he's a biopsychosocial you know, he treats people with a biopsychosocial lens, but he also similarly, simultaneously holds these very, very biomedical beliefs. And so that the biomedic, what you're saying is in your research, the biomedical beliefs kind of override the biopsychosocial beliefs in terms yes, of clinical yes. decision-making. Yeah. So it's possible to hold both at the same time, which <laughs> kind of is a little bit uh, perplexing to me. But, mm. um, and when you do, it's the 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 biomedical beliefs are the dominant, you know, force. I guess there. Yeah, it is really interesting. It's um, it's it's very hard not to view these two things as a dichotomy, um, but but they're not. Um, but it just they they oppose each other in a lot of ways that I feel like we do kind of fall into that false false dichotomy from time to time. Uh, and I, I know myself the first time looking at that data and seeing like, hey, there's all these people with with high biopsychosocial beliefs, but they've also got quite high biomedical beliefs and that's that's influencing what they're doing um, with patients. It was, was really interesting. Well, I guess, you know, that, you know, makes sense of a lot of uh, conversations I've had on social media with people who are, you know, in my view, very biomedical, but then they're, they're saying, no, 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 I'm biopsychosocial. I'm like, oh. So yeah, I guess I guess we're both right. They, they are biomedical and medical, and they are biopsychosocial. Mm. Um, thank you very much, Mitchell. Uh, I look forward to uh, reading that research, and uh, I'll definitely keep an eye on you uh, as as we move forward because uh, I think you're onto a fascinating line of research here. And um, yeah, I think you'd be doing great things for the world. So thank you. Thank you very much for having me on, and, and thank you for the kind words. <laughs> After two exercise science degrees and over a decade and a half of reading research daily, I've condensed all the current science on rehab into a program called the Clinical Exercise Specialist Rehabilitation. Inside the program, I'll teach you to do three things. One, deeply understand how the body works. Two, confidently and expertly rehab literally any client. And three, get results for your clients. So ultimately, your clients tell their friends and you become known as the go-to expert in your area. This program is completely unlike any education you've done before, even if you've studied with us before, because of the way we've built the learning design. It's an online, flexible, skill-based learning program, which means You keep doing the skills under supervision until you're good at them. It's more of a mentorship model than a traditional course model. So rather than rushing through the content and having sort of one go at everything, you actually just practice live and we give you feedback and guidance and we dialogue and explore concepts together until you're highly skilled and confident. We just keep working the material until you get it. It's not rushed at all. It's not about ticking off the content. It's about engaging, practicing, and applying it until you own it. This is a life-changing program, not some weekend certification. I've put my heart and soul into building this, and I can't wait to share it with you and help you discover your genius for anatomy and rehab. 
Now, because of the highly interactive nature of this program, we're only taking on 12 students worldwide. The program starts on March the 1st, and the first 12 qualified people to apply will be allowed to enroll. So if you're interested in learning more, click the link in the show notes and download the course guide or go to breathe-education.com and click on the clinical certification menu in our link in the top menu. That's breathe-education.com and click on the clinical certification link in the top menu.